0: you trust to keep watch over the city's billions? I'm Jarrett Murphy from citylimits.org. My broadcast brother, Ben Max, is off tonight from GothamGazette.com. But now let's hear from another Democrat in the race. I'm very pleased to be joined by Brooklyn City Councilmember Brad Lander. Mr. Lander, welcome back to Maxim Murphy.
1: Thanks so much, Jarrett. It's great to be with you tonight on this very momentous day.
0: Yes, very momentous for a lot of reasons. And not just because Brad Landers on Max and Murphy. There's something else happening in Washington, too, I've heard.
1: So I hear and I'm sure grateful to, to the leaders who have the guts to stand up to this insurrection and, and demand accountability, including some of our great new members of Congress, like Jamal Bowman and Richie Torres standing up today and doing the right thing.
0: So you have represented your district, your Brooklyn district, in the council since 2009. You're the deputy leader for policy. You're the co-founder of the council's Progressive Caucus. Uh, you've been a, a major player in the past few years. And on your website for this year's race, you have a tab that says, why Comptroller? So address that for us. Why is Comptroller <laughs> the office that uh, makes sense for you? And why are you the guy that makes sense for it?
1: Uh, Thanks, Jarrett. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about it. And, you know, obviously, I think there's a lot of folks who aren't sure what the controller's office is or or does. um, But it's such a critical office at a moment like this when the city is facing such a big fiscal and economic challenge. Obviously, for the next few months, priority one has to be getting a handle on the pandemic, distributing the vaccines, saving lives and bringing immediate relief to families who are waiting in line for food and small businesses who can't pay their rent. But when new leaders come into office next year, we'll be tasked with uh, figuring out how to rebuild our economy and get our city moving forward again. And, you know, we've seen crises like these in the past. Out of the 1970s and after 9-11, city leaders really made the choice to give the city over to business elites and hope that real estate development would bring our city back. And some jobs got created, but a much more unequal city resulted that made it so hard for people to live in. Um, But our history has better lessons, too. Out of the Great Depression and again after World War II, city leaders invested in the subways in CUNY, in Mitchell-Lama housing, and those investments build a platform for shared economic growth that served our city really well for decades. And I believe we can do that again now by investing in the climate resiliency we're going to need for our future, by investing in a new round of social housing with programs like Mitchell-Lama. And to make all of that work, we've got to make government work better. Um, and that's why I'm running for control, though. The control is really the job about seeing our economic future, seeing the long term risks we face and then demanding that government work better to deliver on the promises it makes. Because, um, you know, government can't deliver on any of that when city agencies are run poorly, when corruption runs rampant, when there's mismanagement. Um, And that's what you turn to the controller for as the city's chief fiscal officer and the city's chief accountability officer. And this is a really urgent time for both those tasks.
0: Talk about the sort of underlying skeleton of the city, the financial strength of the city, uh, or or weakness. You know, when you look at how the budget has grown in recent years, um, when you look at decisions about uh, how much debt the city's taken on, do you feel like the um, the basics, the fundamentals of the city's finances are very strong? Are they? problematic? Um, are there steps that should have been taken the past few years to shore them up for emergencies like the one we're facing? What do, What are the kind of guts of the city's finances look like to you?
1: Absolutely. And obviously, when you face a pandemic like the one that's uh, hitting us, you know, every city and state around the country are getting really devastated. Um, that's why the winds in Georgia last week were so important, because, you know, we've got to start with the federal aid that our city deserves. But yes, we didn't do things we should have done in recent years. Uh, we did not create a rainy day fund coming out of the last, fiscal crisis, and we knew we should have. I'm proud to be a sponsor at the city level of legislation that will stand up that rainy day fund so we can save money uh, for the future, something that we should have done so we had a bigger cushion to fall back on, Um, you know, and I think we could have been started already making more smart long-term investments. You know, we're behind on some of the climate resiliency and infrastructure investments. Our infrastructure is increasingly creaky, as people can see in our subways and on our streets. Um, And I do think that's going to have to be a stronger focus in the years ahead, not only on the hard choices around the operating budget and how much we can afford to spend in a city where we have to cover all of our expenses with our revenues, but how we really focus on the long term infrastructure investments that our city needs as a platform for growth um, and especially as we're facing the climate crisis.
0: Do you think the rules of the game have changed as a result of COVID? I think that's a topic a lot of people have discussed over the past year. You know, for many years, we've counted on the city. For better or worse, having a growing population for many decades, obviously, the city's economy has been built partly around people from areas outside the city coming to offices here to work and spend money and all the economic activity generated by that. Do you think any of those fundamentals, once the COVID crisis has passed, will be changed forever? Are we dealing with kind of a different landscape than we did before?
1: I guess I think about it a little differently. To me, it's what choices can we make to put the city in the strongest position to have the most durable, just and sustainable future? I think if we just look backwards and say, you know, will we have the big banks or, you know, the the folks that lined Midtown before um, and pine away for them, you know, you'll miss you know you'll lose what happened in the past that's changing without leaning into the future that's coming. So I think it's worth looking at what the places we hope for growth are. I'm really glad that that new Cornell Tech campus has opened on Governor on Roosevelt Island um, that's going to try to help create a great new platform for jobs, fill up the Brooklyn Navy Yard with the next round of sustainable innovation and um, you know, the kinds of companies we need for the future. Um, you know, I hope Broadway, you know, comes back big and strong, but there's new forms of art and creation and creativity. And of course we want New York City to be the place that is building on that, that is a place of vibrant creativity, but we need to do it in a way that shares that prosperity and those benefits better than we have done in the past, the, you know, post-fiscal crisis and post nine eleven recoveries leaned too much in on wall Street, um, and as a result, the uh, gaping and widening inequality left too many people behind so um, continue, you know, rebuilding that strong safety net, uh, building a more equal economy and leaning into a future where New York is still a vibrant hub and can be even more because more people have an opportunity to participate in that economy, whatever that is, whether that's, you know, kind of climate investments and rooftop solar and the Green New Deal, whether that's the next round of of creative production and arts and culture and music, um, or whether those are just the small businesses that fill up our neighborhoods with, uh, you know, culture and food and energy and services that come from people all over the world. That's the city we want. And and we can have it if we invest in it and build it together in smart ways.
0: Do you think that the fear that wealthy New Yorkers uh, who pay, uh, you know, a significant share of the city and the state's tax revenue that they might depart. Uh, is that something to worry about? I mean, that, that model that we have come to use of, of, for good reason, taxing the wealthy to pay for a fairly extensive set of services in the city. Um, it, it obviously hinges on, on the wealthy being here. Is there, is there a danger that that model will have to be rethought?
1: I guess I think there's a bigger danger on the other side. If we starve our city of the investments that it needs, if you let the subway get run down, if you don't keep our public schools good and CUNY is a place of vibrant uh, energy that people have an opportunity to get that higher education and and produce something that nobody would have seen before, you're going to guarantee a shrinking city. Like, I think, you know, that's what austerity choices do is put you on a path to shrinkage. And what we need to do is be on a path for shared growth. And, yes, that involves some shared sacrifice. You can't have an economy as unequal as it has been. That's going to be an equal platform for lots of people to thrive. And I guess what I would say is I believe the vast majority of New Yorkers, including the vast majority of wealthy New Yorkers, want to be in a city where everybody has a good, strong social safety net and everybody's got an opportunity to really create and contribute. And I think by leaning in with that model, we have a much better chance of getting a vibrant future. And I think if we go instead with an austerity approach, because we're afraid of a few people leaving the city, what we'll wind up with is a crumbling subway and public schools that people aren't sure they want to send their kids to. Um, to me, we've got a much more vibrant opportunity in the years ahead. Um, I think if you build a city that's resilient for the climate future, that's investing in public education, that's got to enough affordable housing, um, you'll have an awful lot of people who want to live here.
0: So as you have begun this race for Comptroller, you've set out some policy ideas in a few different areas. And one of them is, and I think you mentioned this already, climate change. Uh, What do you think as Comptroller your role would be in advancing that issue, which obviously on the council, you and your colleagues have have done some significant work. Uh, Where do you think the Comptroller can take that next?
1: Yeah, the Comptroller's got a a really unique role that I think is especially important in confronting the climate crisis. One job of the Comptroller is to take the long-term view on the city and speak about and help us get ready to confront the risks we take. And you don't need to be a genius to know the biggest long-term risk that we face right now is the climate crisis. And therefore, the Comptroller's office has a unique set of tools. So the Comptroller's the fiduciary for the pension funds. Um, And with that role, I'll complete the responsible divestment from oil and gas corporations, um, join strategic alliances with shareholders around the country to compel bold climate action by banks and utilities and tech companies and help address uh, financing gaps for clean energy. Um, The controller is the city's chief fiscal officer, and that means conducting a real analysis of what are those financial risks that the climate crisis poses and how could we do better now to adjust our contracting, our spending, our infrastructure to mitigate climate risk so we actually save money in the long run. Um, and finally, the controller is the city's chief accountability officer. Actually, the biggest agents, the biggest unit of the comptroller's office is the audit bureau. Um, and I would establish a new dedicated audit team to focus specifically on agency sustainability environmental justice in our agencies and hold both city agencies and private sector actors accountable to some of the ambitious clean energy targets we set and make sure that we're also on track to make the investments in coastal resilience and climate readiness so on all three of those roles um, around the pension funds as chief fiscal officer and through the audits um, the comptroller's got a really important role to play in helping New York City get on a path to climate resilience and, and a green New Deal, and as comptroller, I'll help lead the way.
0: You mentioned divestment, and that's a really interesting uh, tool that uh, pension funds all over can use. And the comptroller obviously has been active in talking about divestment in New York City. And y- you mentioned fossil fuels; that's something the city has committed to uh, divesting from in the past. There have been uh, movements, and and I think some action on. Firearms and tobacco, and obviously in, in earlier days South Africa, and I think more recently Iran. Divestment obviously is is an issue that where the comptroller is uh, exercising a few different um, authorities and a few different um, perspectives and priorities. On one hand, you know the morality and politics of whatever the situation is. On the other, looking at the fiduciary responsibility to let the pension funds grow. And somewhere in between is managing that risk that you talked about. How will you evaluate, you know, we never know what's going to come down the pipe. You could be comptroller and three years from now, another industry uh, becomes targeted for divestment. How will you balance those? How will you evaluate what what is something that is worth investing from versus some other form of shareholder activism? It's
1: a great question and a, a really important one. And I think the one of the words you said is the place to start, and that's that the comptroller's role is as a fiduciary. And the way I understand that is you remember whose money it is. The money in the pension funds doesn't belong to the comptroller, doesn't even belong to the city of New York. It belongs to the retirees and the public sector workers who will be retiring. Um, And it's the choice of them and their trustees about how to invest it. And one critical goal is making sure they absolutely have the retirement security, which they've been promised and to which they are entitled. But it's also their money in the sense that their values should be reflected in their portfolio, just like, you know, anybody's uh, investments are. And that's a decision that has to be made together and thoughtfully and in partnership. So what I'd like to do is establish a process to do every couple of years a strategic plan for responsible investing that puts all the things you just said on the table. Here are the hurdle rates we've got to hit. Here's the economic climate we're in. Here's our risk tolerance. And here's how we're looking at a range of the kinds of values and choices. We want a future for the city that isn't ravaged by rising seas and rising temperatures. And so we believe it's appropriate to have that value in mind as we're doing our investing. Um, We want to look at a range of other factors as well. And it's not only divesting. You can bring uh, proxy resolutions and take shareholder activism to put pressure on companies you invest in um, to make sure their boards are more reflective of people in the country, including their workers. Um, And you want to look at how you're balancing your portfolio across a range of investments. And there are some places where you can help fill credit gaps in affordable housing and clean energy and local job creation and credit access. Um, And if you do a strategic plan for responsible investing, then you can give to your money managers, to that chief investment officer I'll hire and their team, uh, a proactive plan, and they can build a portfolio that over the long term, achieves risk-adjusted market rate returns while meeting the goals that have been set down collectively. Um, That's a lot better than having them have made a bunch of investments and every so often kind of tapping them on the shoulder and saying, hey, we've got a new thing we want you to do. Um, And we haven't done it proactively in that way before. um, And that's how I'd like to handle it.
0: Another element of your platform that's interesting is uh, you speaking about it, kind of how to make the economy more inclusive is discussion of social ownership. Um, talk about that idea, and then also talk about you know one of the questions that always comes up when a comptroller candidate has great ideas is how does the how does one use the tools of that particular office to to foster that kind of economic model?
1: Definitely. So I mentioned Mitchell Lamas before as one of the things that uh, city leaders invested in coming out of World War II. And, you know, there were about 150,000 Mitchell Lama units built. About half were the traditional way we sometimes think about affordable housing, rental housing built by private developers with private owners. And the other half were limited equity cooperatives, co-ops uh, that people own, But when they sell, they can't make a lot of money, you know, speculating on the market. They can sell it, you know, to someone that is the same income that they were when they moved in. So you preserve that affordable uh, ownership opportunity for the long term. That second model removed from speculation and and, and private for-profit ownership is a kind of social housing. And if you look now, Out of the 50% of the units that were rental, about half have gone private, have gone market rate, are not affordable anymore. But of the co-ops, 93% are still affordable, even though those cooperators could choose in many cases to privatize. They choose to keep the units affordable because they believe that that's important for themselves, their kids, their grandkids, and the city as a whole. So This idea of social ownership that we have a lot of places at Penn South and Mitchell-Lama for economic development at the Brooklyn Navy Yard says, um, let's have some things that are owned in ways that protect them from speculation Um, And that could be a community land trust, that could be uh, a nonprofit that owns a supportive or affordable housing development, that could be a limited equity co-op, or that could be something like the Brooklyn Navy Yard that puts the public good first um, in achieving that housing affordability, in achieving that job creation. and you know, we have a lot of that housing today, a little over 10% of our city's market um, is some form of social housing. Um, you know, here you would include public housing as well as the other forms I mentioned. And I really think we should grow it. In recent decades, our affordable housing efforts have really um, much more been for-profitized where you used to have community development corporations getting a lion's share of the land and money. It has increasingly focused through the Giuliani, uh, Bloomberg, and de Blasio administrations on for-profit developers. And then you always have to worry, is that unit going to opt out of affordability? Instead of having it in that kind of model that Mitchell-Lama creates, a a co-op that really provides permanent affordability um, and functions as a base for a broader set of people to thrive and succeed. You can't do that with everything, but we've got an awful lot of models uh, where that works, and I think this would be a good moment to, to lean into doing more of it.
0: So I need to ask you about a nickname. When I was uh, growing up, uh, my nickname was Jarrett the Parrot. And I think that was because it rhymed (laughs) and also because I was something of a teacher's pet. The nickname that is occasionally used for you on social media and elsewhere, and it's not particularly friendly, is Brad Pander. Tell me why you think people call you that and what do they not understand about your vision and what you've tried to do uh that leads them to think that it's pandering.
1: Well that's a that's a good question and I wonder about it sometimes myself. I'll tell you, you know, one of the unusual things people don't know about me is in pre COVID times I do uh kickboxing and there my instructor's nickname for me is B Rad, uh which I don't suspect <laughs> will catch on, but I'm gonna try to get my trolls to use in the future. Um, I guess all I'd say is this: I respect people who disagree with the politics I have. It's, it's a great thing about democracy that people have different set of thoughts about how we should achieve these goals. And, you know, I work with a lot of people who are, are Republicans or more conservative Democrats. I represent um, a big ultra-Orthodox community, and I've got friends there who really have very, very different viewpoints than I do. I don't think anyone that knows me, honestly— thinks I'm not uh, speaking from the heart and saying pretty straightforwardly what I think. Um, None of what I've said to you here or really none of what I've done in office is, you know, with some goal of pandering or winning people over, You know, I started my career 25 years ago working at the Fifth Avenue Committee as an affordable housing developer, as a community organizer, creating jobs, working on criminal justice reform. Um, And I've been doing pretty much the same set of work with a lot of the same allies over 25 years. So I respect people who disagree, and I think it really takes a city of diverse perspectives to make New York City thrive. Um, but I promise that I say what I believe, I try to work with people, honestly approach people, um, in good faith and, and try to get the work done together.
0: So last question for Councilmember Brad Lander, if you win this race, you will be inaugurated alongside a brand new mayor and, and that mayor will be facing potentially a very, very challenging situation. Talk briefly about the relationship you see the comptroller and the mayor having and, uh, you know, to what a Point to what extent is it one of partnership? Uh, when is it all right to criticize? How will you handle that, knowing that this mayor is going to face some some tough stuff, and that t- to have a powerful citywide official uh, kind of in a in a uh, adversarial position uh, could be could be very difficult for that person. How are you going to handle that relationship?
1: Yeah, that's a smart question. I, I think you know you're, you you answered it in the question. It has to be both. We are going to be facing some of the hardest times that the city has seen, you know, in any of our lifetimes and and generations. And we have to pull together. I mean, the sniping between the governor and the mayor, New Yorkers are sick of it. We must have people who pull together to get through this crisis. And we're going to have to be able to set a table in a way which people with different points of view, you know, from different sectors of the economy, with a really different ways of thinking, can engage honestly, can debate policy, but also can support each other in trying to win a future. And that's going to be important, whoever the mayor is. But it is also the job of the controller to tell the truth, to speak honestly about the city's finances to give a critical perspective to conduct audits that shine a spotlight on what need to be changed Um, and new yorkers need to be able to count on the controller uh, to be independent of the mayor Yes, to try to work together so we can move the city forward, but also to have that honest, independent voice is going to insist on making government work, who's going to really tell the truth, um, and get people involved in doing so. Um, and that's the, the posture that I will bring to the relationship with the mayor, uh, whoever New Yorkers elect to do it.
0: Well, City Council Member and Comptroller Candidate Brad Lander, a.k.a. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>
1: It was really great to be with you, Jared. Thank you so much for for the time and the good questions.